What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. to this week's episode of Burn It All Down. It's the feminist sports podcast you need. I'm Shireen Ahmed, freelance writer and sports activist in Toronto, Canada, and I'm leading the toxic femininity charge again this week. On the panel, we have the amazing weightlifter extraordinaire, my favorite PhD candidate slash croissant maker, and author of Unsportsmanlike Conduct, College Football and the Politics of Rape, Jessica Luther. She's coming to us from Austin, Texas. Dr. Brenda Elsley, president of the Feminist for Leo Messi fan club, undeniable genius and associate professor of history at Hofstra University at Hofstra University in New York. And the indomitable, brilliant Lindsay Gibbs with the most beautiful laugh and the mightiest pen, who is my favorite cuddling companion. And she's a sports reporter at Think Progress in D.C. Before we start, I would like to thank our patrons for their generous support and remind our new flamethrowers about our Patreon campaign. You pledge a certain amount monthly, as low as $2 and as high as you want, to become an official patron of the podcast. In exchange for your monthly contribution, you get access to special rewards. And with the price of a latte a month, you can get access to extra segments of the podcast, a monthly newsletter, and an opportunity to record on the burn pile, which is only available to those in our Patreon community. So far, we've been able to solidify proper funding for editing, transcripts, and our social media guru, Shelby. But we're hoping to reach our dream of hiring a producer to help us with the show. Burn It All Down is certainly a labor of love, and we all really believe in this podcast. But having a producer to help us as we grow would be amazing, and we are so grateful for your support and happy that our flamethrowing community is growing. We have a kick-ass show for you this week. We will speak about Wimbledon. Lindsay interviews Anne Orchier, an organizer with No Olympics LA, about their quest to stop the 2028 Olympics in Los Angeles and the upcoming transnational gathering of anti-Olympic organizers in Tokyo. And then we have a segment on the World University Games currently happening in Napoli, Italy. It's going to be a heck of a show. Let's get going. So before we start, let's talk about WNBA All-Stars. Jess, Linz, Brenda, what are your thoughts on that? Well, so we, we right now we know the starters for the WNBA All-Star Game. We don't know the full list. I think that's coming out on Monday. So by the time this episode comes out, we'll have a better idea of, you know, the full roster of All-Stars. Uh, we know that Elena Deladon and Asia Wilson are the two captains for the All-Star Game, which is super exciting. So that means they're going to be picking the teams, which we love. 
because uh, it's a little drama. And who doesn't love a little more drama <laughs> in our lives? <laughs> I do. Bring on the petty. Bring on the drama. Uh, I actually got to talk to Asia Wilson on last night, on Saturday night in D.C. She and Liz Cambage and the whole Las Vegas Aces team were in town. And uh, Las Vegas is going to be hosting All-Star this year. So they are all just so excited to kind of bring the whole WNBA to Vegas I am trying to figure out how to go. So um, every all the flamethrowers, I need you to cross your fingers for me. And yeah, I, I don't know. I, I love the All-Star game. It is so much fun. Although I do know that some of the players and coaches don't love it quite as much because the alternative is that they get a vacation for a few days. <laughs> so, <laughs> I can't really blame them because the WBA season is so ridiculous. And when you have All-Star, you don't get a break. <laughs> Overall star break, but uh, it's still, I, I don't think anyone can say it's not a great thing for the sport. Jess, were there any surprises for you? Not really any surprises necessarily, but I did think of Shireen. Actually, was the first person I thought of when I saw the list because making her debut this year is Kia Nurse. Yay! <laughs> As a starter, which is, which is big. That's so yeah. big. Yeah, it's huge. And so I know that her biggest fan is Shreen Ahmed. So that was actually my very first thought when I saw the list. (laughs) She was the first one who I saw. And she's actually been, for those of you, I think it was episode 54. She was on her show and it was lovely. So just so you know, there's a connection between us and the All-Star. There's many connections rather, but between us and the All-Star game, burn it all down. So it's exciting. Can I ask when the game is? July 27th. Okay, July 27th. Perfect. So not not too far in the future. So here's a um, question, Jess. They don't announce the entire roster. They do it one at a time because the only one that I actually saw this at first was Kia Nurse. So why did I only see that? I don't know. I think they listed the top vote getters who are okay. the starters. Okay. Correct, Lindsay. And then the coaches will decide the last 12. Okay. Yes. So they listed the top 10 and that's a combination of fan vote plus player vote plus coaches vote, I believe. But that's always a little, I mean, look, it does turn a little bit into a popularity contest. Let's like not even lie when the fan vote is 50%. And obviously popularity and fans are super important. So that's big. But I think then the coaches kind of come in and pick the next 10 players who are going to fill out the rosters because, you know, you know, it's important to also have players who, you you know, might deserve it statistically and, you know, but might not have the biggest profile. You know, if you look at just numbers, I wouldn't really expect Asia Wilson to be a starter, but I mean, she could be a starter, but like to be the number two player uh, so far this season, as phenomenal as she is. However, you know, she has the whole South Carolina voting contingent, (laughs) like Don Staley got up. So stuff like that is fun. And I agree with it. But I also think that it's really important that, you know, there's some sort of I I do like that the coaches kind of uh, round out the roster. Yeah, I mean, I do think that's why there's three Las Vegas players. Is because they're a popular team. Yes, like three are starters, right? Yes. Like I, I agree that it definitely skews. And I don't that. know. I don't understand how Jewel Lloyd made it as a starter. I don't know how. I don't understand how Dewana Bonner is not a starter. Yeah, Br- yeah Brittany Griner Bonner. I think is also questionable as a starter. Although I think she should definitely be on the team. But she had a really tough beginning. So there's there's some there's some interesting and even Liz Cambage her statistics so far this season. You know she was coming back from an injury, getting used to a new team. She hasn't necessarily had like been one of the top six players, top six post players in the league so far this season. Like, once again, I think she should definitely make the full roster. But, you know, 
like I said, popularity matters and, and fan engagement really matters. So yeah, I'm not like mad at that, but. Starting off our first segment, Jessica, can you take us through Wimbledon, please? Yeah, I'm going to do it as quickly as I can. So as we're recording, I, I assume, because I didn't actually even check, but uh, Roger Federer, he's seated number two. He and Novak Djokovic seated number one. They're playing in the final of the men's tournament. So as we're recording, that's actually happening. If you heard my burn last week, I'm team fed all the way today. Uh, Federer beat Nadal, who was number three, to get into the final. It was their first matchup at Wimbledon since their historic final back in 2008, which I remember really well. I was very pregnant. And the match is considered by many to be the best tennis match ever played. It was incredible. So this semifinal was also great, not at the same level because nothing will be, but Federer was just better than Nadal on grass in the same way that Nadal is just better on clay than Federer is, even though the match was really good. Djokovic beat Roberto Batista Agut, who was number 23 to make the final. Yesterday, we had the women's final. (laughs) Serena Williams, she was seated number seven, and she was going for her historic 24th Grand Slam final or Grand Slam championship. And she was beaten handily 6-2-6-2 by Simona Halep, who was seated number seven. It was a match that lasted less than an hour. And Halep was near perfect. Like I can't stress enough that she basically played perfect tennis yesterday. It was her second Grand Slam title, her first being the one she last uh, won last year at the French Open. So I mean, there's plenty of directions that we could take this conversation. And of course, I really want to hear from Lindsay about her takeaways from all this. I don't necessarily care enough about this, but this is always sort of one of these narratives that that popped up again, that the men's game is doing fine because the top three made the semifinals, whereas the women's side, what was it? How did one headliner put it? Like that they wilted during, that the women's side wilted during the tournament because the big names went out early. I don't know how anyone can't see how the top of the men's game is old, <laughs> is about to retire. Good luck to them. We can and should, of course, talk about 15-year-old U.S. player Coco Goff, who got into Wimbledon through qualifying and then played three very good matches to make it into the second week. That's when she ran into Halep. Uh, she was, of course, our badass woman girl of the week last week. It was a thrilling debut. I mean, I can't stress that enough either. A thrilling debut at a Grand Slam for this teenager, and she was just so, so good. I mean, we should talk about Serena, how great her mixed matches were with Andy Murray. That was super fun. We can discuss this 24th Grand Slam, like whether or not she's going to get there. She's been chasing it since she returned from giving birth to Olympia. She won her 23rd Grand Slam at the Australian Open in 2017 when she was newly pregnant. So that was the last time she won a Grand Slam. She's 37, turning 38 in September. She played very little this year because of injury. She says she's now pain-free. You know, how much is she going to play in the hard court season before the U.S. Open? What did you all think of Serena's piece that addressing the U.S. Open final last year? And then my final sort of, you know, thing here is, will we see Osaka make a run now that she's back on the hard courts? Because she's really struggled since she won the Australian Open. So, yeah, those, those are all my thoughts. I have a ton, but I'm going to stop there. Well, I could listen to you talk about tennis forever. I loved Serena's piece was so oh God, it was so sincere and it was so honest. Like I've come to really appreciate the way that she communicates and communicates and looks and look forward to 
what she says, just because her she let us into a very personal conversation with Naomi Osaka, and we didn't deserve that. Like that didn't need to be ours. But she explained, and that's one of the things too. I feel with Serena, I feel like she's always put into a position sometimes where she has to explain everything, and that at the same time bothers me. Although I'm willing to soak up whatever she says, and then there was this whole bit on her fighting for equality. People like, why don't you just focus on tennis if it's too much? And that again comes to me full circle and people completely not missing the point that what Serena does is tied into who she is and just these questions from sports journals that are just or whoever on the periphery is it just it frustrates me I don't know Lynn's yeah, I think that, first of all, let's talk a little bit about that presser question, because that got butchered a lot. I think it was asked very strangely, but it was also coming from a strange place, which was uh, the interpretation of a Billie Jean King quote. So Billie Jean King, in kind of pre-tournament and media that she was doing, she expressed that she wished that part part of the reason, this is hard for me to say, because... I, I don't like the way this came off, and I, but also Billie Jean King is a person I like to give the benefit of the doubt to because I think she's earned that. But, you know, she said that, you know, that Serena has so much going on in her life that sometimes she knows how much this 24th means to her and just kind of her vivid, you know, dream would be that for just a small amount of time, all Serena would have is tennis, you know, that what, what, what would, she, you know, would this be a lot easier if just for this quest for the 24th? And she said, you know, I know that's not realistic. I know everything else means a lot to her and it should, but you know, she's on these boards that I'm on and I know she does so much work there and she's got all, you know, the, the fashion line, she's got everything else. And, you know, I think in Billie Jean's head, what she was saying was, you know, was that she wished for just a short period of time that Serena, I don't know, would be able to just do tennis or would maybe have the the privilege of not having to worry about a lot of other things. Because I think we have seen as she's gotten older that the ability to flip that switch between all of her interests isn't as automatic as it used to be. And that makes perfect sense because her body is much older. At the same time, Serena has earned the benefit of the doubt too, to be able to make her own decisions in this, in this realm. And I don't think for one second that Billie Jean King meant to say we, she should completely stop fighting for equality, you know, and focus on tennis. But it did not sound great. I didn't actually read the quotes from Billie Jean King until, you know. They're fine. Huh? They're, they're I mean, okay? Okay. Yeah. I mean, I do. I think the paraphrase I tweeted about this. I think the paraphrase was way less generous than Billie Jean. I think the word celebrity was wrong to use in the question. Like she said to Serena, like, you're a celebrity, the one asking the question. But Billie Jean, there's definitely like, you can tell that she... It's like she wants for Serena that she could just play tennis and not have all these other things. But then she says that the very last thing is like, if this is what makes her happy, then it's fine. You know, so I just anyway, the the question wasn't fair to Billie Jean King or I mean, we can argue about that or to Serena. I just think it shouldn't have even been asked. But I think for anyway. me in saying about questions, I, did, oh, I didn't mean to state that it was wrong for Billie Jean King to say that. I just meant the conversations that arose around that. And I should have clarified because I agree with you, Jess. That's the vibe that I got. That Billie Jean King has always been a very strong advocate of Serena Williams because, you know, life experience and her own 
uh, staffing contributions to women's tennis as well. But it's the conversations that arise out of that. Like you said, the paraphrasing wasn't good. And I don't know, all these things that come around discussions on Serena's choices and her tennis and her game and this and that. It just, it become really exhausting, I imagine. And this is part of a longstanding pattern, particularly with Serena and Venus, where more so in part because they're so famous, but also we of all the sort of racialized gendered things that happen around them, their entire career, they have been questioned about their commitment to the sport. And so it's just, there's no way to divorce this question from that long history. And I think that's as soon as I heard it, it ruffled my feathers because it is just so normal in a way that is so undermining to the Williams sisters. Brent? I mean, I just agree with everything that I'm just nodding my head until it almost falls off. I mean, I, I find it so frustrating the way in which many journalists try to pit women in tennis against each other all the time. <laughs> it's like, I don't know, it's like their second favorite sport, right, is to is to sort of stoke these flames and pretend that they know about these relationships between people or that they can shape them. And on the one hand, I get it because people do have a really strong emotional attachment to the athletes that they love and they want to know and they want inside their head. But I do think there's something particularly heinous about pitting Billie Jean King against Serena in some media way. I, I think it, it's just like it, it smacks of, of kind of, you know, the, the sort of center of patriarchy, which is to make women fight with one another for like scarce resources, which may be like free time and the ability to not do politics or whatever that resource is, right? Make them sort of against one another. So I I mean, I read Jessica on it and I was also ruffled feathers is like a really nice way. I picture Jessica as like this beautiful flamingo flapping and I'm more more like spontaneously exploding. (laughs) My head is like in a million pieces. But I think we have to recognize that this is like, you know, call out when questions like this are posed that pit women against each other in sport. You know, if there's anybody to pit Serena against for me, it's Margaret Court. And, you know, yet I, I just, I so want this for her but also like why am I asking this of her <laughs> like beat that record um yeah which is a stupid I record know. the record does like, not mean like, anything and yet it's yeah, sitting you can't there yeah. I, I know Ugh. I know and yet there's part of me that's just like you know I mean also just do it yeah please can we just erase Margaret Court from <laughs> Okay, can somebody explain what record you're talking about? Jessica, what record? Uh, so that court won 24 singles titles when she was Grand playing. Slams. It was just a Grand totally slams. different time. Grand slams, thank you. Grand slam titles. But like, I mean, when I was reading about it this week, it was a time when like almost no one went to the Australian Open, right? Like she won it all the time. She's Australian. It's just a totally different, like what Serena has had to do to win 23 versus what Margaret Court had to do to win 24 is just, you just can't compare them, but it's become a whole thing. They mention Margaret Court all the time. She's horrible, huge homophobe. You know, they're talking about taking her name off of stuff in Australia. Like it'd be nice on some level for Serena to win this thing. And we can never talk about Margaret Court again, but you know, she shouldn't have to either. She's the goat. So 
Yeah, it's frustrating, but it also it means something to her too. So I think that that's yes, another that's reason true. if she wants to keep going for it. And I do want to say though, I think we are all very sensitive when it comes to Serena because we love her so much <laughs> and because she's taken so much crap. But I do want to say I do think it's somewhat legitimate to question should she play a few more tour events now than she used to? Would that help her in these late stages? And I think even she herself said she thinks being in a final on the WTA tour level would help her kind of get past this hurdle late in her career. So it is yeah. legitimate to talk. Yeah. You, you know, she is an athlete and we can talk about her, you know, uh, question her athletic decisions a little bit in a respectful way. <laughs> but I think, you know, we have to be be careful to, to not be doubting her commitment to the sport because she's still here. So <laughs> I think she's pretty committed. But I also want to say that part of this makes me sad because we are doing something that I get mad when the rest of the media does which is we've barely talked about Simona Halep. And I think that, uh, you know, and like I said, I'm guilty of this and it's so hard because Serena is is everything. And, you know, I mean, she's won 23 major titles. She's earned the right to be the, you know, the pivotal topic of discussion. Um, but Simona Halep's win in this final, her entire run, for her to win on grass of all sub of all surfaces, which is not her best surface. She's a slider. Yeah, she, she's she likes a slider. Grass is nice to you. Her footwork on grass <laughs> was just phenomenal. And her defensive effort in this match and the way she blended oh defense and offense. I mean, it was a... It was a perfect showcase of tennis. Like this was honestly, even if Serena was at her peak form, she would have had trouble with Simona on this day. I don't know if anyone could have beaten no, I don't Simona either. yesterday. I don't either. It was it was an incredible. And, and she, she was like the defensive hits where she's like going back across her body, across the net, and hitting an angle that like made and painting the line. I just it was, it was unbelievable. unbelievable. And, you know, there were so many shots at Serena hit that would have been winners against anyone else. Yeah. And then, you know, people were saying, oh, well, Serena had this high number of unforced errors. But it's like, but that's because Simona was getting to everything. So she she felt she had to go for the lines in this extreme way. Like, part of that was Simona's yeah. play. And look, I just think it's, I love that after the match, they said, could you play better than that? And she said, no, I, I executed my game plan perfectly. And she was kind of in disbelief at how perfectly this had all come together. And look, she's a former number one. She's won, She won the French Open last year. So this is not a, you know, an out of nowhere shocking result. But it's it, it was for me, who's followed Simone Halep for so many years to see her. I mean, her narrative was that she could not perform on the biggest stages in the sport. The heartbreaking losses in finals, the ability to yeah. execute on the WTA tour level, but not carry that over to majors. This was who she was. And then to see her, you know, against Serena Williams, who Simona has been, I mean, Simona gushes about Serena Williams, you know, and I think she has the right amount of respect. Like there, she posted a, Instagram from Indian Wells earlier this year that, you know, that was her watching a Serena match is saying, you know, watching the goat, you know, I mean, she has so much respect for Serena, but she also has enough respect for herself <laughs> to not go into a match, you know, thinking she's already lost. And I just loved what we saw from Simona Halep. I love who she's developed into the way she's found this mental calmness that she never had in big, mm -hmm. big things. And I just want to make sure that, you know, we give her her due as well. So uh, congratulations, Simona. 
Next, Lindsay's interview with Anne Orchier. Hello, everyone. Lindsay here, and joining me is Anne Orchier, a organizer with No Olympics LA, an anti-Olympics movement that is trying to get the Olympics away from Los Angeles and maybe kind of uh, help us come up with a new model all together to do this. And thank you so much for being here on Burn It All Down. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. So I guess like, let's just get let's just dive right into it. No Olympics LA. Why don't you want the Olympics to be in LA? Because you know, I've heard tons of things about how good it's going to be for Los Angeles, you know, Mayor Garcetti has been on all these podcasts over the years that I've listened to. So why should what are the downsides of the Olympics being in LA? Yeah, I think um, something that's important to keep in mind whenever people talk about the benefits of the Olympics. So for example, someone like Eric Garcetti, who will who will talk about kind of what the Olympics, what people stand to gain from the, hosting the Olympics in LA. And for him, that's true. He personally stands to gain a lot from hosting the Olympics in LA. The Olympics are a great way for... Um, for people who are already based in centers of power, who have a lot of resources, um, who have a lot of money. The Olympics are a great way to accumulate more power, resources, and money and disenfranchise anybody who's standing in your way of that. If you are not uh, part of the ruling class, essentially, if you're not one of the people who stands to, who already is like part of that like super, super powerful minority, you get screwed over basically in every way possible. So that's the majority of people in a host city. And typically we look at their like six major impacts that the Olympics have on host cities and on the residents of host cities, kind of excluding that minority elite. And that's environmental destruction and decimation, displacement, accelerated gentrification, just basically like out of control real estate speculation, criminalization of poverty and informal economies, just really accelerated and exacerbated police militarization. And also just keeping in mind these these ten these are things in Los Angeles that we already see on an ongoing basis. So we're not saying the Olympics caused these. It's just that they they basically like pour gasoline on the, the fire. Yeah, I think one of the things that has been staggering for me as I've studied up on your movement over the past year or so and written about it um, from time to time at Think Progress has been really how, you know, there can be all these regulations in place, but in a mega event like the Olympics throws all those regulations out the window. And it just seems like it gives those in power the authority to do whatever they want. Particularly, let's talk a little about the environmental impact. There are certain kind of environmentally safe steps that don't have to be followed if they're using the excuse that they're building these projects or these these stadiums or housing or hotels for the Olympics. And another thing that, and I think we've talked about this a little bit on the podcast, which is that ICE would have a lot of access to the LAPD, right? Like ICE can kind of uh, be much more involved in the local policing. Yeah, I think similar to the environmental regulations, I would say just like as a kind of blanket statement, whether it's about housing, whether it's about environmental protections and regulation, whether it's about policing, one way that we, we've sort of talked about and thought about the Olympics or I don't know if you're familiar with the idea of, or your listeners with just with a, like the state of exception, which is the idea, you know, in politics, it's mainly has referred to the kind of like post 9-11 security state mm. and the idea 
like in moments of crisis, political actors and, and people in power will use that crisis to say, you know, this is a state of exception. All of the all of the sort of like normal operating procedures around whatever it is, protecting privacy, like that's suspended. And now we have to kind of go into this like hyper vigilant mode. And we see something similar happen with the Olympics, but it's, you know, obviously it's, it's instead of a, a crisis, it's a, you know, like, like a celebration, basically. It's like, we're having this big party and this big thing that needs to happen. And so every, everything that would normally be like a non-starter or that people would get upset about suddenly is some somehow permissible and like, and then those things get normalized. So for the example of policing, and um, as you mentioned with ICE, and this is also literally connected to the the like traditional sense of the state of exception. Since September 11th, uh, Olympic Games have been designated a national special security event, which means that it basically mandates what's called a unified command between federal and local law enforcement. So originally, NSSEs were things like state funerals, the Democratic National Convention. And the idea is that there are events that might be potential terrorism targets. That's the justification for it. Of course, in the case of the Olympics, like there have been, you know, sort of like two high profile terrorist incidents, but actually the, the like highest body counts for Olympics are of residents of the host city at the hands of local police. Like that's actually the most dangerous, you know, if you're, if you're thinking about like potential uh, violence and like risk related to the Olympics, it's not the terrorist threat. It's what happens when you like pour millions and billions of dollars um, into local police forces and give them, you know, high tech weapons and surveillance and basically like carte blanche to do whatever they want to like keep things clean and calm for the wealthy tourists. So so that's what happened in LA in 84. Um, I was about to say that that was a big part of like the riots, right? Like, like yeah. what led up to the riots. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Basically, you know, Gates, the LAPD in the 80s, you know, for the Olympic Games, he was basically allowed to do whatever he wanted, given tons of money, like high grade military equipment. And that was basically what, what sort of provided the foundation for the war on drugs in LA in the, the mid to late 80s and then leading up into the early 90s. So we know that there's plenty of reasons not to have an LA, but you are hoping to make this a more global movement. I know that you and some other organizers are headed to Tokyo. Can you tell mm-hmm. us why are you going there and what, uh, what should we be looking out for? So we've recognized that in order for any of us to be effective, like the people who are behind the Olympics games, those interests, whether it's the IOC, the real estate speculators, the corp, you know, corporations and public sponsors, they're organizing transnationally, like they're working together. They're all so it doesn't make sense for us to just focus on we have to also be thinking at that level, because that's, that's the level that we're being organized against. So some of it is on that pragmatic level, on a political level, too, it's about recognizing that our, our struggles are connected, that these are the same problems, and that we're all you, you know, we're all more likely and, and better equipped to solve them if we're working together rather than than sort of like trying to just pawn the games off onto another city. Yeah, that makes sense. So what are we going to see from you all? I know there's a day of action. I believe it's July 24th. Is that correct? Yeah, July 24th is the is the International Day of Action. And we're having a big there's the organizers in Tokyo have planned an event in Tokyo. So really looking forward to that. Yeah, I'm just really personally looking forward to seeing like, 
how folks in different cities and countries are approaching things like coordinated direct actions, uh, how they're choosing targets, what the you know parameters are. They, for folks uh, who haven't looked at them, the, the name of the group is Hunger and No Kai. And if you, they have Twitter and, and oh, I don't think they have Instagram, but they have Twitter and a website. And you can see they make, I think personally, do they make like the most amazing posters? Most of them are out of cardboard. They've done a lot of these sort of like installations around the parks. They formed mainly out in response to the criminalization and displacement of unhoused folks in Tokyo which has been accelerating in the lead up to the Olympics and getting sort of more aggressive and violent. You know, Japan has some laws about the rights of, of unhoused people to occupy public spaces that we don't have in the U.S. So they've made a lot more traction on that front. We're seeing, we're seeing all of that kind of like start to just go out the window and be increasingly violated in the lead up to the games, um, along with a, a pretty concerted attack on public housing. So on that note, too, one of the things that I'm also personally really excited about and have been working really hard on is we're going to have we're going to have an event towards the end where we we all get together and just talk more generally about about the impact on housing and organizing as tenants and unhoused folks and organizing together and kind of what that's looked like in each of our different cities and countries. Like what have the challenges been? What are the contexts? What are the, the things that we're all kind of seeing? happen that are similar? What are the things that are different? And then how do we all work together, not just in the context of stopping the Olympics collectively, but particularly around the, the right to, you know, the right to housing and residence. But here's another thing is that we, you know, we here at Bird It All Down, we are a sports podcast. We do love sports and we do love the Olympics. So it's always a tough thing for us. And it's something we discuss a lot, which is how do you know, you kind of like, ethically watch the Olympics, knowing, you know, what is going on on the ground in these host countries, knowing the corruption in the IOC, you know, knowing the corruption within so many of these federations. Do you, I mean, I think it's often, you know, the, the problem often is if you're an activist, if you're against something, you have to have absolutely all the answers on how to fix that. So I'm not expecting that from you, but just like, yeah. where, where would you like to see us go from here? Is the answer to just kind of like, get rid of this competition. Like is, is, and, and it might be like, that might be the answer. And that might just be something we all need to grapple with because it's not worth it. Yeah. And I think, I mean, the short answer is like, yes, but I, you know, so I think we all, we all basically like appreciate the importance uh, and value of like athletic competition and physical activity, but it's really the, about the, you know, profit motives, right? It's like, that's, that's the thing. It's the IOC. It's the collaboration between the IOC and the corporations and the politicians. And then, so the short answer is like, I don't think that there's a way to reform the Olympics as long as those are the people running it. But I don't think that that means that we get rid of like international sporting competitions. It's just about how how do you take that profit motive out? How do you build in accountability? And we actually, there's a video, if you go to our website, olympicsla.com slash videos, we made a, a video this past year called Swolshalism. I didn't come up with the name, so I can't take <laughs> it. Right? I, I think it's cute and funny. And it's basically like, it's a good like little explainer on the history of, of basically like anti-capitalist, like international sporting events, of which there are a lot of but we don't know about because they don't have the same like you know crazy multi-gazillion dollar like branded stranglehold on our consciousness that the olympics do 
but those have existed. And in particular, there have been like two, like basically like communist, like protest games in response to the Olympics. So one was in response to the 1936 Berlin games, the Nazi games, there was sort of like a counter, a counter Olympics organized by a communist party. So that exists. There are models for that. And again, I appreciate you saying it's like, we don't have to come up with all the answers because yeah, the, the sort of project of taking down the IOC and the Olympics is just a, a big enough task yeah. in itself. <laughs> yeah, you're I, busy. You're busy. Yeah. <laughs> busy. We got some stuff, on, stuff on our plate. But I do welcome, like, I think people should look into these other alternatives. And I think, I think these models exist. And I do think it's possible to come up with an alternative that is not dominated by, like, corporate greed and destruction and, and just, like, exploitation. Basically, like, yeah, the IOC and all of those, the interests that it represents, they're just sucking the marrow out of, like, every human being, city, natural resource, like, that they can. And so when you take them out of the equation and start to look at other people who have run games that are, are not dominated by that, that sort of level of rapacity, it seems pretty cool. Like I would be really excited about that. I would be super excited about a, like a collectively run international sporting competition where like athletes actually got paid just for LA for the movement that you guys are running um, in LA on the grounds. What, what are the next steps? Cause I know that it's, it's technically official that, you know, LA has the 2026 Olympics, right? But that's also a long way off. And I know I've talked to some people within your organization who say there's still pot hope that we can defeat this. Yeah, absolutely. And I would actually, I would push back a little bit on that, like that idea of, oh, it's official and ask like, what does that really mean? Right. And, and sort of getting back to the idea of how, like who the IOC is, like they, okay, they have sort of given their permission and they've said like, they, they've sort of bestowed this, you know, quote unquote honor onto LA of hosting the 2028 Olympics, but they make up the rules as they go along. You know, this is not something that is like handed down from a higher power. Like we don't, we don't have to make them in charge of this. Well, there's sort of two good examples of, of like why we can sort of question this idea of what it means for the bid to be official. One is we actually, we have historical precedent in Denver in the seventies, Denver rejected a bid that was official. Oh, okay. So it's, it's actually happened. It has happened before. Like it could happen again. The other one is Amazon. Right. Yeah. So I think we're entering this era where it's like important to look around and ask or not. It's critical (laughs) that we say when we have when we enter these junctures of like, oh, this is official. This is happening. There's nothing we can do. We can step back and say like, well, wait, why? Why is this happening? Just because a couple of really like hyper wealthy, powerful people decided behind closed doors that this was going to happen. Like now we have to accept it. Like we don't. We can say no. So it's really about getting pressure on maybe some local politicians, local power brokers to keep pushing back on this. And of course, organizers on the ground, which are the most important. Yeah. And I think, I mean, what we've seen in the past is basically the IOC, the IOC pretty much like will pack up and slink off at any sign of of local opposition and democracy. The IOC, it's been super cushy for them for the last whatever, like 100 years or so where they could just come in, do whatever they wanted. They're not accountable to anyone. They take home huge stacks of money. 
from this process. And it makes sense, like when you think about it, that anytime there's like a little bit of friction, anytime there's a little bit of even annoyance, they just will say like, you know what, not worth it. And we saw that like when Oslo rejected the bid, one of the main sort of critiques that Oslo, that residents of Oslo had weren't even around like the impacts to the city like people were really upset about and this is i i haven't talked to organizers in oslo so apologies to anyone who's listening if i'm like mischaracterizing their opposition but from what i've read one of the centerpieces of their opposition was all of the the demands that the ioc had including like oh we need private jets we need to take over your you know your highways and your transport we need all of you know all of these like accommodations basically and residents of Oslo were like, we don't want to subsidize that. And the IOC just said, kind of like, okay, like we're done with you then. And so that's the, le- like, it's, they pretty much will pack up pretty quickly at the signs of democracy, essentially, at the signs of people exercising their collective right to, to speak out and to determine like what's going to happen in their own city. All right. Well, listen, thank you so, so much. I'm so excited to see what happens in Tokyo and to continue to follow along. And we will continue to check in with all of you. And please keep us updated on all the work uh, you are doing. Awesome. Thank you so much, Lindsay. Brenda, can you give us a little bit of an intro into our next segment, please? (laughs) I'm going to try. As much as I miss the Women's World Cup, it's actually a refreshing change to delve into the World University Games which have been held in Naples, Italy. Uh, They started July 3rd and are wrapping up the day we're recording today, July 14th. And um, these are the 30, this is what I've learned. So I I, I started like delving into this at the suggestion of Shireen. So bear with me because I'm a newbie to this, but I'm also like a new fan. So this is the 30th iteration of the games, right? So now they're being played every two years. There's winter and summer versions of the games. Next up is going to be Lucerne in winter 2021 and Chengdu, China in the summer of 2021. And it's run by the International University Sport Federation, which I have to admit, I had no idea existed. I'm still learning, right? A little bit at a loss as to what this is. And I'm also really confused about how representatives are chosen. So, for example, in Team USA Basketball, the U.S. women were represented by Mississippi State, who won a silver, and then for the men's side, Clemson. So I'm like, huh, like like that's interesting. So, but I mean, I'm imagining what I think is that it's sort of relationships that have come out between universities like North Carolina State seems to be particularly keyed into the swimming sports here. And so, and so I'm Mm -hmm. learning how different universities have kind of gotten themselves into this international tournament. And once I started reading about it, it was really interesting. So Japan and Russia are killing this tournament, 82 medals apiece with Japan right now on top. I think there's water polo finals still to be played, but water water polo. polo. And then the US, China, and Korea are next, but very far off in the 50s and 40s with meddling. A couple of things that were interesting to me is just because I'm a soccer person, men's soccer, Japan got gold, Brazil, silver, and France, bronze. And in women, South Korea, gold, wow. Japan, hmm. silver, Italy, bronze. And I'm like, oh. wow. but again, like I, <laughs> I have to be. 
How do they, what, yeah, like what right. teams are they sending? Are these like right. well, you or something? I mean, okay. they're not sending internationals because, huh. because it's right interesting. Now, they have to be right, university except, athletes. Okay. Okay. But let, let's okay. get weirder into this. So of <laughs> course, like I'm burning all down. We're going to be really happy that Duty Chand became the first Indian woman in track and field athlete to clinch a gold medal at these games, right? So yay, she won the 100 meter, yay. 200 meter dash. <laughs> um, after being persecuted by the stupid testosterone rules of IAAF, uh, it turns out the new ones don't apply to her events. So, <laughs> so she's, That's right. Because um, they're she's, yeah. faster. Yeah. And, yeah. and she's, <laughs> she's, she's come out to support Caster. And she's also become this year India's first everly openly LGBTQ athlete. So yeah. she's publicly stated she's in a same-sex relationship. She's come out to express the Indian Supreme Court's, her support for the Supreme Court's decision to decriminalize gay sex. And after that, she she got, oh, terrible, like, sort of violence against her. So I was really happy to read that. Okay, that said, Duty Chand is 23 and is employed at a mining company. Like, so she's not in school? she started law school in 2013. I'm happy to see her on any who, right? But I am am a little bit flummoxed Mm -hmm. as to what this is. And I'm so intrigued to figure out what the NCAA has to say about this. So I'm sorry if that's a shoddy introduction, but (laughs) I can tell you that it's really like piqued my interest and I'm following this now. I think that was a fantastic (laughs) intro. And so this tournament is also actually called the... forgive my pronunciation, Universiade. So it's sort of like the whole it's a made celebration. Up word. So I, I get, or is so it? say it? however you want. <laughs> okay. Is, is it Italian? Actually, I think it might be the Italian. Yeah, it is. I don't know. I, I, I think it was made up. <laughs> oh, really? That it was a combination of university, university and Olympia. Because in like Portuguese, oh. like, it would be like, okay, Universidad or Universidad. So I thought, I just assumed it was like, I don't know, Italian. (laughs) Because the history of this this competition was that it was in 97. And I thought Universiade was was Italian. (laughs) So that's, I didn't, but if it's, I love made up things. Google Translate doesn't pick it up. Because I did read that the very first. I have have news for you. Most sports words are made up. Okay. This is investigative journalism right here in real time. It, Most of everything we talk about it, is completely made up. What, Google Translate believes that it must be a Hungarian word when I tried to tell it it was Italian. So I don't know. I feel like it is a made up word. So say it however you want, strength. Okay. Go ahead. So You're the authority. So it's like, and I'm really excited that we're talking about this because I like doing stuff that's a little bit out of the box. You know this. Everybody knows this. But it's interesting because like, some of the fun things about this are there there's almost 6,000 athletes 112 countries 222 events across 18 sports and what I do like about this is when we hear things like you know like South Korea's women the women's football competition like that kind of stuff excites me because these are these competitions and whereas some the funding for this and I know that Brenda got into this we don't know what the rules are they're a little bit flexible as are many things as sport because federations and universities and teams bend the rules where they can but the idea that people have access to sport on a global scale and amplification thereof always makes me happy I'm sure there's corruption and 
tremendous toxic patriarchy at the root of this somewhere, of this tournament and organization and whatnot. But if it gives people a chance, like if I hear about women's water polo, that makes me really happy. Because, you know, just those athletes deserve that opportunity and all athletes deserve opportunities, particularly marginalized ones. The reason I decided to actually have this topic was because Duty Chant won. And that's enough of a catalyst for me because to have her have a sense of glory and be part of something is really special. Just so people know, Saudi Arabia is sending female athletes, student athletes for the first time. And Kosovo is making its debut at this tournament. So that's always exciting. And on the other extreme, Monaco is only sending one athlete. I don't know if that's in yachting or I don't know what that sport is, but I'm <laughs> they're just sending one. Anyways, so Jess. Yeah, I wanted to mention uh, an Italian discus thrower. Her name is Daisy Asakue. We... I hope I'm saying her last name correctly. She won the golden discus. She's a black woman who was born in Turin. Her parents are Nigerian. And Amira talked about her last year on this podcast. And I'll, you probably will remember when I say this because she was struck by an egg that was thrown from a moving vehicle. She was targeted, people assume, because she was black. And the injuries she suffered were they threatened her eyesight. Oh, that's right. And, yeah. Show. yeah. And so this is very cool that she was in Italy performing in these games and she won gold. So I definitely wanted to mention her. I also thought, you know, I do think the women or the basketball stuff is really interesting. Um, I would like a better sense of like how they're choosing these teams, but Mississippi state represented for the women. And one of the things that was interesting and Rikia Jackson was there. I, I read she's the highest rated recruit that ever signed with Mississippi state. And she showed up in this tournament leading score in every single game. And she averaged 21 0.8 points. And I'm wondering like what this will mean for Mississippi State going into the regular season, like that they got to play this like intensive tournament as a team uh, before the year even started. The other thing that I wanted to mention, I think Shreen and I probably read the same article, but I just thought this was fascinating because it's in Naples. They actually house 4,000 of the athletes on two cruise ships <laughs> and, and yeah. part of the athletes village. And then I just loved this sentence in the piece that I read, quote, as befits a nation so proud of its food, the organizers have promised that bread and mozzarella will be made fresh aboard <laughs> in addition to other Neapolitan favorites like ragu. And I was yeah. like, oh, yeah, I should have gone. Like, the this only is... thing that's made me want to be an athlete, I mean, I'll do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Fresh yeah. bread and mozzarella on the cruise ships in, in the Naples Harbor for 4,000 of these athletes. I mean, that's hosting. If I go somewhere, <laughs> I would like mozzarella and bread and ragu. Just uh, Nashville. No, it's okay. Nashville, I'll have barbecue. But anyways, Brenda? So there was a point at which, Shireen, just to go back to your point where you said you were sure there was something toxic and patriarchal about these. <laughs> so I was, re- I was reading on the official website of the Naples games. I mean, because let's stay in the land of mozzarella. But really, there was two things that struck me. One is the involvement of Pierre de Coubertin you know, the founder of the modern Olympic games, who evidently was, this was his brainchild. And, and the reason that it has been so, Italy has been so involved was because of the fascist party and Mussolini in the late twenties and early 1930s. And I was struck by the fact that this was just like included in the timeline you know, of of the Naples games on the official website, you can check it out, that just is like, oh, yeah, and there's, like, all these fascists. Like, that's part of it. Like, there wasn't any sort of, like, 
like thing like that sucks and is embarrassing. Yeah, like, I mean, you want to still <laughs> yeah. give them props like Shame. on your timeline there. So um, anyway, so th- that's what I I did find that in there. So yeah, we should be attentive to those kinds of things. But I mean, I love to see. Uh, we talked on the last episode about organizing things without you know FIFA and and maybe you know, thinking about how these tournaments can kind of be constructed without these organizations. And so I am really interested in in seeing this alternative structure. Yeah, I just wanted to add to that. So apparently Brazil was actually supposed to host this year. (laughs) And they uh, a few years ago, like even before the Summer Olympics, they were like, we're too broke to host this. So I just love that this is where they drew the line. (laughs) And I think all the way in 2016, they were like, we've FIFA's bankrupted us. So sorry. (laughs) FIFA and the Olympics. But I just for some reason, the fact that this is where Brazil drew the line just like cracked me up. (laughs) Like after all they did for the Olympics and for (laughs) FIFA, it's just like, oh, no, but we can't do this. (laughs) so all right (laughs) that was amazing and i mean these facts are important because it's also this is a non-professional athlete from what i understand a non-professional athlete tournament so it's just really interesting and i do hope that at some point these athletes get an opportunity to go to the olympics because that's what the piece that jessica you and i had read that it can be a stepping stone to get to the olympics and that's what we hope for for amateur athletes that they they get that opportunity and (laughs) although it's shady beginnings and associations and really at the end of the day hope that athletes and coaches get the support that they need Moving on to our favorite segment, this is the burn pile. Brenda, can you start us off by lighting your torch? Sure. This week, I'm burning the idea that any Joe Schmo thinks that he can defeat professional women athletes. (laughs) This week, YouGov in Britain surveyed men and found one out of eight would admit that they thought they could get a point off Serena Williams. And Jessica Luther has made proper fun of all of you on Twitter who maybe (laughs) answered yes to that question. (laughs) But it's not just that. It's actually watching the reactions to the Women's World Cup as well, which has prompted outpourings of male delusion about how their male children could beat the U.S. women's national team. And people have responded and made fun of this and stuff like that. But I I guess here's the thing I, I want to burn like, where is this question even coming from to be on a survey? Like, what is the impetus for that question? It, you know what I'm saying? Like, like, I just don't, I don't get what is the desire, um, the desired knowledge is the knowledge to figure out how many men discredit and discount women's achievements, because we know that just as much in a survey is learned then it, it, you know, it just as much is learned or taught by the question itself than by the answers. So I hate that this is a question. I hate this is a fun game for people. And it's as much that I want to burn the psychology behind it as the stupidity. And instead of identifying with these women athletes, what we've learned is that it's people, it's men's fantasy to defeat them. That at the end of the day, what those questions prompt and what those answers prompt is a fantasy 
about beating women, about about the joy and pleasure you get from saying the best woman athlete cannot enter even into my Joe Schmo, whatever, you know, ragtag amateur softball team or some shit. You know, it's just like, so I want to burn the people who design those kinds of questions and who stoke that kind of fantasy that you are somehow equivalent to Serena Williams, which should be laughable and is laughable, but I think underlying it is something that's not really laughable, which is just the fantasy of hurting women and discrediting them. Burn. 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 Lindsay? Yeah, I just like to place on the burn pile all of the conservative male tears and female tears that we saw this week freaking out over the celebration from the U.S. women as they drunkenly, you know, partied in France and then got on a plane and partied on the plane and then arrived in New York City and partied for two days straight and (laughs) kept drinking champagne and kept cussing and kept partying and all the way to the ESPYs. And we have been told by people in Fox News that they are dividing the country and that their antics, that their non-classy behavior is what's going to keep the country from supporting them and that they are not being good role models to women. And I just want to say that seeing them celebrate this way has been one of the most affirming things I've ever seen in my life. Like, it is just, (laughs) it's been intoxicating because we never get to see women do this, right? And I talked to some other female athletes about this week, and often they're not given the time, they're not given the resources um, because of their schedules. They don't, you know, after they win, they all go in their own directions. So for the women to be able to do this and, you know, to have Megan Rapinoe with a bottle of champagne in one hand and the World Cup trophy in the other hand on a parade float, look at Ashlyn Harris's Instagram story and say, I deserve this. I deserve everything. (laughs) Just like... Injected into my veins. <laughs> Just like injected into my veins. We are so often told that we have to go around and meekly saying, I'm sorry. I mean, how many times do you or I say, I'm sorry during the day just to no one out here? <laughs> like because I'm just like moving around the world and I just there was something so intoxicating about this unapologetic brashness it was Alex Ovechkin in the in the in the fountain after the Stanley Cup it was shirtless J.R. Smith it was everything so thank you to them and throw on the burn pile anyone who thought that that celebration was dividing America because I like to think that you are no fun burn burn I'm going to go next, and what I've wanted to burn is something that had been brewing, and I tweeted about and was just very frustrated about. There's been a push for women's tennis to grow all over the world, and this is a really great thing. This is something that we want. This is something that, you know, hopefully stays in the effects of the Women's World Cup, despite its problematic things and challenges that we've definitely talked about on the show. One of those things is that the Indonesian Football Association is trying to grow women's sports and they're trying to grow the game. So the the Muslim-majority province of Aceh is actually declared, has declared, and, and, and clerics and scholars and not, which is called off of this, this story that I'm reading, quote, hardline Islamic Indonesian province unquote. Um, They have declared that the game is forbidden unless men are excluded entirely. Okay, fine. 
that I love that idea. I want men to be excluded everything of everything. <laughs> so this actually works for me. Can but, we do that? That sounds amazing. But, but the problem that I have with the implementation thereof is that this doesn't happen because the facilities and the infrastructure is not set up. So if you've got coaches that are women that are trained and officials that are women that are trained, I see this as a good thing. But what ends up happening is that because they don't have those in play, the idea is that men shouldn't be able to see women playing and that's what the problem is. So, I mean, I'm not, like I've said this, I tweeted this out. I'm not a scholar. I'm not a cleric, but if men have a problem watching women, how about they not fucking look? How about they not watch? It's really not that complicated. And this really upsets me because the losers at the end of the day are the women who simply want to play. And for the record, these women were wearing like hijabs. They were wearing like tights with their shorts. Like they were fully covered. If any of you have seen, you know, photos of women in hijab playing, like I know in Jordan, the some of the team plays in Egypt, some of the players cover or just, just this idea. It's really not that complicated. It's super sporty, but yes, they're covered. So this really, really frustrates me. And it's also frustrated the association of football that is literally trying to do this. So, and you know, and Aceh is the only region that it, with the like, you know, implements Islamic law to this level. And it's just been, it's been really difficult. And the organizers had said that, you know, the players complied with regulation, they were covered, they didn't violate law in that way. And that they said that they're just trying to get the infrastructure down. And even one of the heads of, of, of an organized committee of women's sports had said, this is really frustrating because build the infrastructure they need. Don't just ban it. And so what I want to do is I want to burn this because at the root of this, these are patriarchal interpretations without giving any leeway. There's rigidity. And where there's rigidity, there's no bend at all. But the idea is, is that women lose because men make these arbitrary decision and it's not okay and i want to burn it all down burn burn Burn. just yeah so i'm gonna go back to tennis at the french open u.s tennis player anna tatashvili returned after 19 months off she had an ankle injury and she used a protected ranking we've talked about this a lot with serena coming back after pregnancy She used a protected ranking to enter the tournament. The ranking was about to expire. Protected ranking meant she didn't have to go through qualifying. She wanted this to be her return to the tour. She got to Paris a week in advance. Tour doctors assessed her stability. She passed the test that she needed to in order to compete. Then in her first round match, she went up against number 29 seed Maria Sakari, who's a very good clay court player. I feel like that's really important here. And Tadashvili lost badly. Six six love, six one. And then Grand Slam officials used a new rule passed in 2018 that requires players in first round matches to, quote, perform to the required professional standard to say that Tatashvili had not performed to that standard. And therefore, she would not get her first round prize money of 46,000 euros, which is about $51,000. That's a really harsh penalty in a sport that is travel intensive, played year round and physically wearing on the body. And just like personally having gone to Paris for a week, like however much money she spent just to be there (laughs) just for this tournament. As Ben Rothenberg of the New York Times reported this week and whose piece I'm relying on heavily, this will, it'll be in the show notes. The point of this rule, the one about perform to require professional standard, the point of that rule is quote, intended to prevent injured players from competing in Grand Slam events just to claim prize money, which has been rising steeply for even first-round losers in recent years. It was prompted by a rash of players retiring midway through first-round matches at majors because of existing injuries. And and part of the rule is that if you withdraw before the match starts, you actually get half the prize money. 
right? So there's an incentive if, if you don't think you're going to do well, you're going to need to retire that you just go ahead beforehand, and then they can fill you in with what they call the lucky losers from the qualifying rounds. This has worked, Rothenberg says, that there's less mid-match retirements in the first round, more pulling out before the match starts. But Tadashvili was the first player to actually play the entire match and then show up and have her paycheck withheld from her. Tadashvili told Rothenberg that she hadn't even considered pulling out before the match because she felt she could compete, even if she knew she wasn't going to do that well. Sakari, her opponent, for her part, called it, quote, super unfair. Tadashvili was, quote, definitely not taking the match and, quote, I was playing really good these weeks and I think she did the maximum she could. Which is one thing to think about is like what this means to the other player, the one who actually beat them, what this says to them. <laughs> so much of sport is totally arbitrary. We just talked about that. Rules are made. Some subjective subjective understanding of them by a referee or official determines if the rule is met. In this case, officials of the French Open decided after the fact that Tachishvili was not prepared based on what they saw and statistics from the match. But what is, quote, the professional standard for losing after coming back from a 19-month injury break? How was one to know beforehand whether or not they're going to be good enough at that professional standard? I'm not sure what exactly has to change here, but certainly something, right? Longer protected rankings for injured players so they aren't pressured to come back as fast. No punishments if you actually play the match. Uh, Better assessments pre-match to determine readiness, like something, This feels um, like one of those moments where the intent of the rule is much kinder than its actual application, and it is a detriment to the athletes. So I just want to burn that this week. Burn. 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 That sucks. Now let's lift up some amazing, amazing people this week. Honorable mentions go to Simona Halep, who won her second Grand Slam final and first Wimbledon title, beating Serena Williams 6-2 in a 56-minute match, during which Halep only made three unforced errors. Doubles was postponed until this morning, and we're recording on Sunday. Um, Diede de Groot won her sixth doubles Grand Slam title in a row with her partner, Aniek van Koot, her third Wimbledon Ladies Wheelchair Doubles title. Um, a special shout out to Connecticut Sun point guard Leisha Clarendon, who had surgery for a subluxed reticulum tissue and dislocated of her peroneal tendons. Her cast was taken off, and she's been documenting her recovery on social media while sporting a burn it all down t shirt. We love you, Leisha, and we're excited to see you back on the court soon. Um, Chelsea Gray of the Los Angeles Sparks finished their game against the Mystics with 13 points, 13 assists, and 10 rebounds, which is her first career triple-double and only the ninth one in WNBA history. Shen Shen Feng had a nine-under-par final round to win the 2019 Thornberry Creek LPGA Classic. It was her 10th LPGA title and first since 2017. As mentioned, Duty Chan became the first Indian woman to win gold at the World University Games in track and field, winning the 100 and 200 meter races. Now, can I get a drum roll, please? Oh my God. The winner is Sifan Hassan, a Dutch Ethiopian athlete who ran a four minute, 12 second mile and 33 tenths of a second. So this is beating a world record at the IAAF Diamond League event in Monaco by two tenths of a second. That is amazing. I don't even drive a mile that fast. So like <laughs> it's, a, you, it's incredible. It's it's amazing. So congratulations to you, Safan. 
Now what's good? Brenda, tell me what that's me practicing my country music <laughs> voice for Nashville. So was, yeah. Okay, go ahead. Okay. Oh boy. Um what's good is JLo giving Carly Lloyd a lap dance. At the garden. <laughs> well, yes. it was good. What's good about it is how uncomfortable Carly Lloyd looked. Like she didn't <laughs> hang, man. Like she was just like. There's no better player that it would have been more awkward with. Like Carly Lloyd is the perfect person yeah, for this because yes, it is peak awkwardness. Like I would, I would, so it, it's still like I'm scratching my head about that visual. I have to say that I think Carly Lloyd really lost an opportunity to enjoy that lap dance. <laughs> She looks so stunned and nervous. That's not Carly Lloyd, though. That's not Carly Lloyd. Right, right. But the, but the, but those things together were like fascinating to me, and I liked it. And I keep watching it, and I don't know what to make of it, except that I love both those people, and them together is awkward awesomeness. I don't know. And so that's that's what's good is that and all the celebrations and the fact that in the ticker tape parade with Carlos Cordero getting, you know, booze and chance of equal pay. So I'm still sort of reveling in all of this and all of my friends, including friend of the show, Liz Hutchinson, who dyed her hair pink in honor of Megan Rapino. Oh, she Liz did, and it looks incredible, as you would imagine, and she sends lots of saludos to everyone. So my friends texting me all their pink hair is, I'm here for it. That's amazing. Lynn's? Uh, yeah, that's wonderful. I have to say, uh, you know, it's been a rough week for me, but I have been carried through by this celebration, as I mentioned, in the burn pile. So that's been what's good. What's good is... Um, uh, WNBA, I'm back focused fully on that. So that's good. You know, women's sports are the are the cure for my uh, my depression. And yesterday, I got to the pool for a little bit. Actually, I did like a real summer thing with some friends. So that was a very rare thing for me. And it was very lovely. So yeah, that was great. That's beautiful. For me, What's good is ice cream. I'm actually not in Toronto, as I said in the intro. I'm actually in Sarnia, which is on the border of Saginaw, Michigan, otherwise known as Brenda Country. And (laughs) well, all of Michigan is Brenda Country. And I'm here for a soccer tournament with my daughter. And I'm super proud of her because she's been pulling out some Sari Van Vienen dolls and uh, just really really proud. The girls are short. There's a lot of injuries on their team and the way they're battling through this with their bodies are just young women who are not paid. They're just working so hard. The temperature was up to like 32 degrees yesterday. And it was just really, you know, I, you know, I consoled myself by eating freezies, freezies on the sideline in solidarity. So, cause you know, but, and then just trying to help where possible, making sure they're hydrated, all that kind of thing. It's just a very interesting journey as a parent with a kid in competitive sports like this. Like you see how hard they work and their commitment to it. And I keep thinking I was never this dedicated when I was that age. But, you know, it's just, I'm so proud of these young women, many of whom have very different, interesting disciplines are going to be going off to college in a year or two. And just to see them, I'm very inspired. It's really cool to be like my age and be inspired by people that are like less than half my age. So I love that. And again, ice cream, there's fantastic ice cream here and I find it wherever I go. So local dairies, I respect you. I salute you and I appreciate you. Jessica? Yeah, we've actually been eating a really good peanut butter cup 
ice cream from our local grocery store recently. And that has been good. So thank you for saying that. I too deeply, deeply enjoyed the U.S. Women's National Team celebration. I watched the Megan Rapinoe walkout (laughs) when they introduced her at City Hall. Uh, 4,000 times. Like, I don't even know. I just watched it over and over again. There was some time when she stood up and was just dancing to the crowd cheering. And I watched that just as many. Like I was, I was so taken with it. Of course, Wimbledon was good. I'm cheating just a little bit and watching what is now the first set tie break between Djokovic and Federer. So I'm going to go do that. And that will make me happy today. And yeah, I just my son last week, he did a music camp, a rock camp. And at the end of the week, they made them perform in public, which I thought was like, really brave of everyone involved. It was 90s music. And so I got to see him play the bass on Smells Like Teen Spirit by Nirvana. And he has this nice like shoulder length hair and he was like headbanging. And it was really cool on some level because the kids struggled with these songs. And as a team on stage, they had to get it together and get through it. And they did. And I loved it. It was super fun. And it was such a nice end to what was um, in many ways a very difficult week. So I, I really enjoyed that. So that's it for this week and burn it all down. Although we are done for now, you can always continue to burn all day and our night with our fabulous array of merchandise, including mugs, pillows, tees, hoodies, bags, and I hear rumors of a beach towel. What better way to crush toxic patriarchy in sports and sports media by getting someone you love a pillow with our logo on it? So the Teespring is www.teespring.com slash stores slash burn it all down and burn it all down lives on soundcloud but can be found on itunes spotify stitcher google play and tune in we appreciate your reviews and feedback so please subscribe and write to let us know what we did well and how we can improve you can find us on facebook and instagram at burn it all down pod and on twitter our handle is at burn it down pod you can email at us at burnitalldownpod.gmail.com and check out our website, www.burnitalldownpod.com, where you will find previous episodes, transcripts, and a link to our Patreon. We would, again, appreciate if you could subscribe and share and rate our show, which helps us do the work we love to do and keep burning what needs to be burned. On behalf of Brenda, Lindsay, Jessica, I'm Shireen, and thank you for joining. And I'm sorry.